the destruction wrought by Hamas on October 7th at the small Israeli community surrounding the Gaza border was so complete that in many cases only microscopic remnants remain of those 1,200 who were killed there. The Israel Antiquities Authority is accustomed to searching for such human remains albeit for people who lived hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. Today, some 30 volunteers from the IAA are working in shifts, sifting through the rubble in Be'eri, in Kfar Aza, in the cars that were torched, fleeing the supernova rave. We're searching for things that are so small that if it's not using archaeological methodologies, they're not possible to be found. That's the IAA's Dr. Joe Uziel, who honed his CSI skills on remains of the Babylonian conquest in the Jerusalem city of David. Today, he heads the Dead Sea Scrolls Project, but is volunteering now to help identify those killed near Gaza. The team has found the remains of some 60 people who were killed, but identifying who they are is difficult because some of the finds are from terrorists who came into the kibbutzim. Others are from foreign workers and young children whose DNA is not on file. So this week, archaeologist Dr. Joe Uziel tells me, Amanda Borshal Dan, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure always to see you. Unfortunately, our topic of conversation is not so pleasurable. You are part of the team of Israel Antiquities Authority archaeologists who are helping in the identification of the remains in the Gaza envelope after the massacre that Hamas committed on October 7th. First of all, can you just tell me, how did you become involved in this project? How did the Rishut Atikot, the Israel Antiquities Authority, become involved? So, first of all, I should say that it's a, it's a, I think the first time ever, at least for me as an archaeologist, that I feel my skills are being applied to something that is so modern, so current events, so so dramatic, so powerful. As archaeologists, we're used to dealing with things uh, that occurred 
hundreds, thousands of years ago. But our general director, Elias Gazzito, who also serves in reserve duty and was in contact with the army and the team that was in charge of identifying uh, the remains of missing peoples. And together they came up with this idea that uh, these skills could be applied in the field, our skills as archaeologists could be applied in the field in this situation. So on the one hand, it's extremely different from everything that we do on a regular day basis, but on the other hand, it's very similar in the um, in the actual work as to what we do on a daily basis as archaeologists. Um, I personally, um, when I found out about the project, I volunteered. The IAA archaeologists who are working on the project, this is voluntary, and they chose to be part of this as a real opportunity to actually contribute anything to these communities that suffered so much on the October 7th attacks by the Hamas. So, so yeah, so it's voluntary. Nobody is forced to do this, but there's a large group, I'd say roughly about um, 30 uh, archaeologists, and uh, every day about 15 go out into the field. Some of, some are there every single day. Uh, some of us rotate in uh, according to our other schedules, and you know we'll do uh, a couple, two to three days a week um, uh, working at the different sites. So many times over the years that I've covered archaeology, I've spoken with archaeologists about the high-tech methodology that is increasingly being used in the field. And so many times people have said to me, it's like CSI forensics. And I never really believed that those skills would be used in such a contemporary purpose. And the first time that you were out in the field, how did you feel? So I, th I think the 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 first moments are just taking it in because you don't know what to expect. I mean, you see the images uh, on the news and uh, you hear the voices of the people who went through it. And those are um, extremely, you know, powerful. And, um, and on, a, on a personal level, uh, I, I very clearly remember sitting at home on October 7th and feeling quite helpless, um, not being able to do anything for these people that were suffering so much. And so when, when you first arrive, uh, at least for me, um, this, this was something that I didn't really know what to expect. And when you get to these kibbutzim and your first, your first vision, at least my first vision is, I, you know, start walking on the pathways and you see the beautiful greenery and there's this sort of quiet, save for the, you know, the the bombings uh, uh, that are a little bit more distant, but you can feel that sort of, the sort of very, very calming presence. And I really, the first, my first, the first thing that I felt was connecting to this sentence that I kept hearing people who lived in these villages say is, uh, this was our, you know, slice of heaven. And that's what I felt. And then all of a sudden you turn your head and you see how that heaven was turned into a uh, really hell, um, uh, and so um, and so that was sort of my first feeling. Uh, and you don't know how you're gonna manage it, I guess, is seeing this all of a sudden this heaven turned into such a, a, a horrid, you know, situation. But once once you start working, 
you delve very, very deeply into the technical side of things. Um, the actual work in the houses uh, is quite physical, and uh, we're working together with soldiers from different units, from the from the IDF rabbinate, uh, from the IDF units of the uh, what's called a tan, the um, the finding uh, of missing peoples, and we're working together. It's quite physical. Uh, it's quite technical, and you really connect to what you're used to doing in your day-to-day -day job. And once that happens, it becomes a very it it becomes a very um, I'd say natural connection. Uh, and you understand how you're contributing. And so, although you're seeing these horrid images uh, live, and that's completely different than seeing them on the news and in photos and in videos, you're seeing them live, but at the same time, because you know you're contributing, uh, it sort of fills you with some sort of, I, I want to say, sense of accomplishment. It's very difficult to use positive uh, words in this situation. Nothing is positive. Our identifications, you know, a, a couple of, you know, the first times I had to think of how you say, okay, we had positive identification, so is that a success? Do you, do you define this as a success? You can't define anything here as a success. It's, it's lose, lose, lose. But um, the question is, you know, um, are we contributing something? And I think our contrib contribution has been quite impactful. Having a sense of purpose in contributing is, of course, very, very important during this really difficult time. And I know I feel that as a journalist as well, that once I put on the mask of a journalist, then I can tamp down all the feeling. But it creeps up, of course. And, and definitely in the first few weeks, I was crying probably <laughs> two dozen times a day. No, no question. You are out in the field, which you are obviously used to. You now have more of a desk job as the head of the Dead Sea Scrolls project, but in the past you were in the, the city of David. You're no stranger to dealing with bones. You're no stranger to dealing with any kind of, you know, humanity, the remains of humanity, but this is fresh. How are you dealing with that? I, I think that it's sort of a split answer. On the one hand, when we're doing the technical work, we're really trying to focus on the technical side of things. And yes, we're used to dealing with events that occurred hundreds and thousands of years ago. But at the end of the day, the finds or, or the ability to, I should say, the ability to identify the findings, particularly the remains, uh, is very, very similar. And so in that sense, um, I think we're we're sort of very focused on the technical in terms of then understanding, okay, wait, I am collecting remains of someone who was killed three weeks ago in, in a horrible fashion. Um, the way at least I deal with it, and I think most of the archaeologists from the IAA are probably thinking in the same sense from the conversations I've had with them is um, there are missing people. Um, we know of people that were murdered. We know of people that were kidnapped. And there's a lot of gray area in between, which are the missing people. And um, if we can just help any one of these families have some closure, because I think for many of them, uh, the not knowing is something that is just so difficult, like I, I can't even imagine it. And so if you know that the worst has happened, then it's horrible. But I think at least there's some knowledge which will allow the closure and allow you to move ahead um, in in whatever way you can. And and each family will have to deal with it in their own manner. But but at least they they 
they know what happened. We heard this week about the confirmation of the death of Vivian Silva, and I believe that was through your project. How many other families have you helped bring to closure? So it's it's actually uh, a little bit complex. Uh, we found, uh, I'll say we found uh, remains of some 60 people who have been, uh, uh, who, who were killed. Um, and, I, and I say we're killed and not say murdered because some of the finds that we have are from the terrorists that came into the kibbutzim and into the, uh, um, we have uh, over 10 positive, secure identifications. Um, and this is still a work in process. Um, it's not always easy once we find the remains uh, to make the uh, direct uh, and 100% positive identification because the finds are being sent to the pathological labs of the IDF where they're, if possible, being checked for DNA. Uh, now, DNA, and this is going back to your earlier thing about our use of DNA in archaeology, well, here DNA can also be complex. Not always do the remains uh, have uh, um, have remains of DNA. Not only not always do the bone fragments have remains of DNA that we can use or that the labs can use. Uh, DNA is also a comparative uh, thing. So if you have DNA of missing people, you can compare. But if you don't, then you don't necessarily have that connection. And so it's a work in progress, and it will take some time. And I believe the numbers. Uh, on the one hand, of the identifications with, will rise, and that will create a situation where the numbers of missing peoples will minimize. Um, one of our biggest problems is, of course, that we don't know exactly um, who was um, abducted, kidnapped, uh, taken hostage. Um, so we have this rough number and we see the difficulties and this is not, I, I want to make sure, this is not putting out any critique towards uh, the different bodies that are working through this, uh, difficulties and numbers that are still changing. Um, and it's because of the, um, I'd say the scope uh, on the one hand and the, the, the power of the destruction. And so it really is hard to come up with these identifications. And so anyone and any body who, who can, and there are several you know, different teams, be it from the police, from the army, from Zaka, who have worked through and trying to do their best. And everyone is really, one thing I, I, I think is important to say is everyone is really trying to do their best. This isn't a, you know, in any way, you know, uh, competing bodies. Everyone is just coming in and contributing uh, in a way similar to what we see in Israeli society right now that's going on, that every everyone is just trying to contribute somehow to help. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now 
will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. You in the city of David have worked on destructions such as the Babylonian conquest. How would you compare the destruction that you're seeing in the Gaza envelope to what you've seen from these thousands of years ago, very tragic events that are still commemorated in the Jewish people? So, um, uh, first of all, I'll say that there are numerous uh, similarities and there are differences. Um, and if we get really into the technical um, um, events that occurred, uh, you used the Babylonian destruction, so let's go there. Um, the Babylonian destruction occurred, but it also has, um, I'd say, what we'd call the post-depositional uh, 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 processes, which occur to archaeological sites in the field. And here, we're going in when the destruction is very fresh. So, what collapsed, collapsed, but, but when we're talking about buildings from 2,500 years ago or, or, or more, there's the initial collapse of the destruction and then there's the continued collapse. And these are processes of destruction that change the way the site looks. Another difference is the materials. The materials that were available 2,600 years ago are different than in sometimes than materials that are in the burnt houses. Uh, one example I'll just give is a plastic, which wasn't available then and is one of the primary burnt materials that we're finding now. So there are differences. At the same time, there are a lot of similar aspects, and particularly within the focal point of what we're searching for, uh, there are a lot of similarities um, in terms of um, the human remains, the bone fragments, which was primarily what we're looking for, teeth, bone, um, and personal adornments, which can also be helpful because if we find uh, specific personal adornments, jewelry, for example, we also collect them, we pass them over to the army, and this way they have another possible way of, of creating an identification. The layering is also somewhat similar because uh, basically... In these houses, you can actually see a, a stratigraphy of sorts. Quite often, you will have the collapsed upper story sitting above the uh, collapsed ceiling, sitting above the burnt layer of the lower floor. And so you actually have a stratigraphy. Um, you have zones within the house, and we do work according to different zones. And so it's not just clearing everything in one big pile and running through it, we're, we're sort of trying to say, okay, this happened in this room and this happened in that room and so on. And, and so these are some of the concepts that are very, very similar and connect us with our day-to-day -day work. You're used to working at a pace, which is the pace that you choose, right? You can study a site for a decade, if you wish, three decades in the case of Gat with our, our good friend, Aaron Mayer. But time is of the essence right now. And how is that changing how you work? So, Or is it? In some ways, I guess it is. But the truth is, is that every context that we go into, or, 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 or every building we're going into, we're trying to do our best to, um, to get out all of the information. And so 
Um, we're not trying to work with speed. Um, we are trying to coordinate somewhat with information we may have that can help us narrow and pinpoint. But, but I'd say any attempts at speed here will cause us to miss things. And our primary uh, aim is not to miss things. And so we have houses that we've gone back to um, after our first initial check uh, and uh, have returned to them in order to uh, complete the work. Give us just some names of the places where you are working. So I personally have worked at uh, Kibbutz Kisufim, Kibbutz Be'eri, uh, Nachal Oz, within the automobiles that were burned primarily from the uh, Nova Music Festival. Um, but others have worked at other uh, settlements as well, Kfar Aza and, uh, and other ones as well. And basically anywhere where we have a chance of finding uh, something is where we're working. Of course, everything is coordinated with the IDF to guarantee our own safety and to make sure everything is documented. Because as I mentioned before, there are several teams. Uh, it's, the, it's the Israel Antiquities Authority, but also Zaka and also the IDF and the police. And so um, there, a, a lot of coordination is necessary here to make sure we're, you know, we're doing our job right. And are you the final layer? Are you the last resort of finding these very difficult remains? I think so. I think that the at the point that we came in, it's already at the point where the other teams uh, had gotten what they could, uh, had collected what they could. And this is sort of the the final, I don't want to say it, that that it's definitely the final the final stage um, because you know who knows what else we can come up with, and and uh, we at the IEA, but I think that the country in general, the IDF, uh, and anyone will do anything and everything to come up with you know a next stage. But I, when we leave uh, these homes that have been burned, we have completely cleared them. Of the rubble, of the of the ash, of the burnt furniture, and so I think we're we're the last stage at a point where we're searching for things that are so small that if it's not using archaeological methodologies, uh, they won't be able. They're not possible to be found. You mentioned the the complication of finding DNA in some of these bones, and is that? Because they're just burnt to a crisp? Um, it's because of the burning, but also because of the size of the remains. We have this sort of idea that DNA is really, really easy. Like I know, you know, going to, let's say, normal times, um, there are many, you know, modern DNA projects like searching for family lineage and, you know, you get these little cotton swabs. Everything is real nice and easy. Um, but that isn't necessarily the case when you're talking about small fragments of bone that have been burnt. Um, and so DNA becomes more complex. And the other thing is, um, if we're talking about uh, certain people, uh, we may have DNA um, to compare to, but others we don't um, because we don't have their DNA originally. And so you don't know how to, how to cross the two. Such as the foreign workers, for example, who worked in the agricultural fields, etc. Such as the foreign workers, but even children. Um, if the house was burnt down and we don't have, uh, and the army doesn't have their personal belongings that they can get DNA from, then 
how do you compare? And so you start having to come up with different ways. And and so it's, it's a very complex process. Um, I should say that when we work, one of the primary uh, things that we're trying to do is balance between making sure we're finding uh, everything we can, but also respecting where we're at. Um, and so uh, everything we find is transferred uh, automatically to the army. And at that point, they're, they're doing the, the analysis, they're doing the next stages. And this is, I, I think, important, I mean, because we're dealing with a modern uh, situation. And as archaeologists, we also try to apply our highest level of ethics and consideration to events that happened hundreds and thousands of years ago. And here, we have to take it to a new height because um, we're talking about people whose families are still around and you know we have to be considerate of families, neighbors, friends, and we have to be considerate to their feelings, how they're reacting. And so we're trying our best. I never imagined that what happened on October 7th could happen. The atrocities, the massacre, the, I mean, the evil. And the next thing that I could never imagine was before October 7th ever having to use archaeological skills to contribute information to such a horrible massacre that occurred in my lifetime. There's so many in the world today that are denying that this massacre ever took place, and you are an eyewitness to it. What would you say to those people? Without getting too political, um, I think that um, the people who are denying uh, are primarily denying with the sort of preset uh, ideology and thought. I am not sure if we will ever be able to convince people who are denying, because I think they're denying that it occurred from really an anti-Israel and an anti-Semitic point of view. I think our efforts in in explaining to the world what happened have to be focused on people who are open-minded enough to understand uh, that and who don't come with, a, 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 I'd say, a, a preset anti-Semitism or anti-Zionist uh, approach. Anyone who sees these uh, houses, these villages, these cars, um, and I've come across numerous foreign journalists who you see it and you understand that this was hor more horrible than anything you could ever imagine. And I think th that the journalists who do come do understand that, but uh, we need to remember those are the ones we have to be working with because people who are preset and spreading fake news on social media and saying this never happened, I don't think we have who we can actually speak to. This is obviously preset in their own personal ideologies, racism, uh, and so on. Um, uh, I mean, what you have seen is just terrible. But do you think that it is important that the world does see these horrors firsthand in terms of photography or videos? Is that important to get out? I think so. Of course, this is my view, not in terms of uh, an archaeologist, but I think I think it's it's extremely important. Because if I think of myself as someone who's sitting halfway across the world, and I read a news feed that says over a thousand Israelis were murdered in a horrifying way, I may have trouble 
understanding that because it's so foreign to us. It's so inconceivable to us that anyone could do this. And so I think it is important for us to show what we're doing. And that includes the work of the Israel Antiquities Authority um, because by showing how deep and how high resolution we're going into these houses in order to be able to find even the most minimal remains is actually showing in a way how important life is to Israeli society, how important our communities are to us, how important it is for us to support one another. And so I think in a sense, in this aspect of our work, it's a sort of a, a one of the many uh, because there are many signs of strength since the October 7th attack, but one of the many signs of strength of Israeli society. Uh, and so I think it is important to share with the world. Joe, thank you so much for sharing with me. Thank you for having me. From afar, it sounds like a regular archaeological dig. The rhythmic whisper of fine dirt falling through a sieve, the clink of rocks as archaeologists paw through them manually, looking for the smallest items. The trowels, the brushes for more delicate excavation were all there, along with square sieves and the ubiquitous black buckets for hauling the excavated material. This is the beginning of a feature my colleague Melanie Lidman wrote after visiting the Israel Antiquities Authority volunteers near the Gaza border. Please check out the full feature on the Times of Israel website. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.